I'm Agnes Frimson, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello. The keen-eared amongst you might have noticed that Ben Horton was missing from the introduction there. He is off on a jolly, off gallivanting in Australia for three weeks. So, alas, it is just me here today in the very cold Chatham House TV studio. Although to make up for just me on the intro, we do have double Ben Horton on the interviews this week. So... You have to put up with me rambling now, but um, you get more of him later. So who did we speak to this week? Ben, on his own, spoke to Champa Patel, who is the head of the Asia programme here at Chatham House, and James Crabtree, who is an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School in Singapore. And they had a chat about India and Asia and what's going on at the moment. And then... Ben couldn't get enough of his own voice this week. He joined me to interview Jane Connors, who is the rights advocate for victims of sexual sexual exploitation at the UN, which is a pretty big job at the moment. It's a fairly new post. She was brought in in August 2017, and she is absolutely fascinating. And to be honest, I've got a bit of a crush on her. Um, Anyway, let's have a listen. (laughs) Okay, so now I'm joined by James Crabtree, who is an associate professor in practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School in Singapore, as well as a non-resident fellow in the Chatham House Asia and Pacific Programme. And I'm also joined by friend of the pod, Champa Patel, who is the head of the Asia Pacific Programme at Chatham House. And we're here today to talk about James Crabtree's new book titled The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. So James, could you could we start off just by uh, running through what what you talk about in the book. So the book is about a big change that has come over Indian society, politics and economics. Um, India became independent from Britain in 1947. For about the 40 years after that, uh, it had a socialist planned economy that was largely closed off from the world. Beginning in 1991, but really accelerating throughout the mid-2000s, India opened itself up again um, and began a new era of globalization. And my argument in the book, which I call the the billionaire Raj, is that there is now a new system that has developed in India, um, which has three components, one being the rise of a new cadre of incredibly wealthy people of of the sort that has never really been seen in India before. Uh, The front cover of one of the editions of the book features the home of a billionaire called Mukesh Ambani, who is India's richest man, also Asia's richest man. And his home in Mumbai, which is where I used to live, where I was a foreign correspondent for five years, is often known as the the billion-dollar home. This is a a residential skyscraper, 160 metres tall, for him and his wife and his three children. Mm. And that's seen as as an example of the the power and the excess of India's new uh, super-rich. And then there are two other issues that I deal with. One is crony capitalism and India's recent problems with corruption. And then the third is the travails of India's industrial economy, the boom and bust cycle that has left um, India's economy, which although it's very fast growing, it has big problems of corporate debt and and bank debt. 
Um, and so that's the, that's the story of the book. I suppose my argument is that you know, there's no reason why India should not, as one of the emerging giants of Asia, go on to become a prosperous, prosperous middle-income and rich country, but it's not going to manage it unless it deals with uh, these big problems um, of um, inequality and the super-rich corruption and this problem with its industrial model. Okay, thanks very much. Um, just to follow up on that first element there, I wondered how this new billionaire cadre, could you even call them a class, fits into the traditional caste system that's, that's existed in India for millennia. Is it possible for modern Indians from lower castes to sort of elevate themselves or is it less socially mobile than that? I think what you can say is that India has always been a quite hierarchical and unequal society. People know that. It's not just the caste system, although that's very famous. Um, there are inequalities of, of region, of religion, of language, uh, you know, north and south, coastal and interior. And I suppose that the argument that I make in the book is that, in a sense, because of that, people have this idea in their head that India is a very unequal country, and they haven't really noticed how much more unequal it has become economically over the last 10 or 20 years because right. of this explosion of wealth at the very top. Now, there isn't a particular read across between um, you know, the, the 120 odd billionaires and the caste system per se. And the caste system is not something that I deal with in great detail in the book in the way that, that you're describing it. But but I think what's happened over the last 10 or 20 years is the change in India's economic model in which you've had very fast growth and a lot of money coming into the country that has been funneled predominantly uh, into the very top has added a new dimension of mm -hmm. inequality that India will have to deal with as it develops. Yeah, no, when I when I read the book, I was really struck by some of the stories that you told of some of the quite colourful characters and just how kind of, you know, instricably linked politics and graft has become, but then also the ensuing inequalities that we're seeing. So the social contract between the state and the people seems to be much more around the kind of commercial contract between the state and the corporate interests that want to kind of grease the wheels in order to be able to secure kind of commercial interests. But it'd be interesting to hear like your thoughts on how much do you think has actually changed under Modi? He was seen as this great reformer, but we've seen the sort of um, and certainly there's been a lot of high-profile anti-corruption cases, but we've seen the sort of deep structural reform that's needed in order for it to be a truly open economy. So Narendra Modi, the, the current prime minister, won an overwhelming election victory in 2014, in large part because he was seen as a personally honest leader. Um, in the preceding five to ten years, what happened was that India's old retail system of corruption went totally wholesale. So there had always been corruption in India. Under the old system, the closed socialist system, uh, you had to pay bribes for everything, but they were very small bribes. You know, if you wanted to get a telephone line installed in your house, you had to pay a bribe. Most people didn't have telephones because there wasn't an open market economy and it was controlled by the state. If you wanted to get a scooter, you had to pay a bribe. Oh, everything required small dollar bribes. Um, but what happened after 1991 Optimists, free market optimists said, well, if we allow the free market to work, then governance problems will disappear. Uh, but that's not what happened at all. What happened was that as the pie got bigger, the value of taking a slice of that pie uh, through corruption got much, much more valuable. Mm. And so you had this huge um, series, they call it the season of scams. And that was really when very valuable things that were controlled by the state 
could be handed over to their their friends, their their cronies. So that could be um, the license to to could be land, could have been coal mining licenses, iron ore mining licenses. It could have been telecom spectrum. Those are some of the most famous examples. And so these multi-billion-dollar corruption scandals. Um, in the 2000s became one of the things that India was really known for. And that was when people had a very bleak outlook and thought maybe uh, if we're very unlucky, India will go the same way as Russia. You have um, extraordinary wealth at the very top and then an awful lot of cronyism. Mm. So Modi came in and to give him his due, he has cracked down on a good deal of that. There hasn't been as many mega corruption scandals um, in the last three or four years as there were in the five before that. And I think he gets some credit for that. He's a, a personally honest leader. However, that is far from saying that India is now a corruption-free society. Surveys suggest that India remains the most bribe-ridden economy in Asia. Everybody knows that even if there's no longer endemic corruption around the cabinet table, meaning at the very pinnacle of the political system in New Delhi, there's a ton of corruption if you go to Mumbai or Bangalore or Chennai. I mean, all of these systems are, are pretty rotten to the core. And, and so there's still a lot of dissatisfaction about that. And, and then you have an even greater problem, which is the nature of the Indian political system. So India is a raucous democracy. It's also a very expensive democracy now. The ele elections cost an enormous amount of money. One estimate suggested that the last election in 2014 cost $5 billion, which is nearly as much as an American election. And yet the official statistics will tell you that India's political parties spent, you know, two shillings and six um, on that election. And all the rest of it comes under the table from precisely the people who I deal with in the book, the tycoons, because they're the only ones who've got the money. Yeah. So you have this, this, some people call it a nexus. It's a, a sort of closed circle in which the politicians <clears throat> need the money in order to win elections, and the only place they can get the money is from the tycoons. The tycoons give them the money. They obviously expect something in return. And until you can break out of that cycle, it's very difficult to to sort of have a, a, a well-governed, corruption-free society. One, one other thing I would add, though, it's not this is not unique to India, and one of the reasons why I remain cautiously optimistic about India's future is many other countries have been through this cycle. South Korea, you know, totally rotten to the core. America in the 1890s, Britain in the 1830s, a lot of countries have been through this period of early industrialization, very rapid growth and, and rampant corruption. And, and many, you know, come through it and, you know, build prosperous societies. And there's no particular reason why India can't do that so long as it grapples with the, the, the problems that I mentioned, the, the thing I call the billionaire Raj. And is there a particular story you'd like to share with our listeners where you think really exemplifies some of the issues that you're talking about? I remember when I was a, so I was a foreign correspondent in Mumbai, which is how I uh, came to write the book. And, and there were a myriad of these scams, as I say, telecom spectrum and mining. One that I remember was the iron ore scam uh, that happened in the coastal states of Goa and Karnataka. Um, and again, one of the arguments in the book is that what's happening in India is not purely about India itself. Mm. It's a global story. So this is a story about India and the age of globalization. And so in the mid-2000s, China's economy was going bananas, and you had the Beijing Olympics. And because China was building all of this stuff, it was building sports stadiums, undergrounds, railways, it needed a lot of steel. And so the global price of steel and thus the global price of iron ore began to go up. And so in India, suddenly it became very, very valuable to get hold of iron ore mining rights. And so the two states that had that in Goa and in Karnataka had this Wild West moment in which you know, people really wanted to start digging lots of iron ore out of the ground. 
And the whole system broke down, that they had a regulatory system, didn't work anymore. You had this Wild West moment in which um, corruption became completely rampant. And in the end, the Supreme Court had to shut down all mining because it, it had become so rotten. You know, people were starting mines illegally. They were digging out more than they were meant to. They were sort of literally taking kind of hundreds of trucks of illegally mined um, iron ore to the coast and shipping it off to China without anyone knowing. And that was one of the kind of multi-billion dollar scandals um, that I, I got to see that showed, in a sense, what happened when you took a country that had a rather rickety government and you pumped it full of money. And that's basically what happened all around India. Um, the people who had access to the things that were valuable, in this case the mining rights, could suddenly sell them off for multiples more than they would ever have made before. Mm. And this became a recipe for grand crony capitalism, which was the thing that people then reacted against in the, the corruption, anti-corruption protests that followed. And, and that was why, or partly why, Narendra Modi won such an overwhelming victory. You mentioned earlier about this kind of perception that India has always been a somewhat unequal and corrupt society. I wondered whether you have a sense of how the international reputation of India as a country has been affected by this by this system. Has it been at all? Do you think it's confirmed people's existing biases or do you think it is having a new knock-on effect on how India conducts itself in the world and how it's seen by foreign powers? I think India is just viewed as a very different place from what it was known as before. If for, for our parents' generation, if you think of the vision of India, it was a, a rather dowdy, poor country known for its heritage of the Congress Party and, and Mahatma Gandhi that had endemic poverty and many onerous government controls. The India of today is completely different from that. I mean, it, it's much more vibrant. Um, many parts of the country are effectively, you know, middle-income nations now. If you go to to Bangalore or Chennai, Goa, um, you know, this is not a poor country anymore. It's not as in the way that you would expect if you went to sub-Saharan Africa. Sure. Um, and obviously, at the pinnacle of society, you have people who are as rich or richer than anyone in the entire world. So I think India's reputation is is changing. And I suppose one of my arguments in the book, a kind of meta argument, is that in a sense we all need to pay much more attention to India. At the moment, particularly because of Mr. Trump and China, we spend a lot of our mental energy thinking about China. But in a sense, the, the, there is a sense that the die is slightly cast on China. It is reverting to a neo-authoritarian style of regime in a way that, um, for those of us who believe in the, the current liberal international order, uh, is unfortunate, but there's not very much you can do about it. But India is, is sort of very much a swing state in the new geopolitics um, that we are moving towards. It is a democracy. It is a free market democracy. It has a secular tradition, although that secular tradition is certainly under pressure uh, under Narendra Modi, who is a, a religious nationalist uh, of a sort. But it's still possible to imagine that India uh, will become, in, in 50 years' time, a rich parliamentary democracy with liberal rights and, and a somewhat secular tradition. And, and given what an enormous country it is, 1.3 billion people, it'll be 1.5 billion people, some enormous portion of, of humanity. In, the fate of India is something that we should all care about. Um, and in a narrow sense as well, you know, if you're a post-Brexit politician, you want to have good trade deals with India, the way that India goes over the next 10 or 20 years is going to have a really huge effect on 
the future of the planet. And so we should we should all be paying attention to this very formative period that it's currently going through, uh, because this is the moment where, in a sense, things are set in course in these early moments of, of industrialization. Institutions are built, patterns of society are, are set down. One of the reasons why I worry a little bit about the levels of inequality in India is that if you start out your journey of development as a highly, highly unequal country like Brazil or South Africa, it's very difficult to change that later. The successful developing economies of East Asia, uh, starting with Japan and South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, to some degree Thailand, Malaysia, they have all been more egalitarian. Um, you know, not perfectly egalitarian. They're not Sweden. They've all got plenty of rich people and plenty of poor people. But the gap isn't as yawning as in India. And, and if you begin your path with this level of stratification, it's quite difficult to then sort of bring it back under control later. Mm. So it's better to try and find a way of dealing with that now. Yeah. So what needs to be done? What would you advise from a policy point of view? I don't think it's particularly rocket science. That doesn't mean that it's it's easy, uh, but at the very top, um, at the very least, you have to make sure that the, the, the very wealthy are contributing their fair share. In America, they call this, you know, millionaires and billionaires paying their taxes, but almost nobody in India pays taxes. It's a country of 1.3 billion people and you know, something like 1% of the population pays income tax. And so you have a big problem that the very wealthy um, are often the people who game the system to their own advantage. And so gradually you need to move beyond that. At the bottom... I mean, the thinkers like Amartya Sen do a lot of work on this, that in the end you need to have the beginnings of collectively provided services. If you look at um, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, they all made their journey from poverty to middle-income status to becoming rich by having good education systems, by providing basic health care, by beginning to build pension systems. A lot of it was also to do with their economic model, which was about developing a certain kind of manufacturing industry that was focused on exports, which India also needs to do. But in the end, you need to have these basic forms of social support, which will allow people to move from the farm to the factory or some other sort of urban job, mm. and then onwards up an economic ladder. And that's been one of the problems that India has, that it's the state in India is is very patchy and, and ramshackle. And so I conclude the book, uh, again, it's not a radical suggestion, but the, the concept of state capacity um, is a very important one for India, because one of the real problems that India has is that its government is hopelessly inadequate to... Uh, the sort of the size of the task of governing a country like this. There are patches of excellence in India's public administration, but they are only patches. You touched on how this is an important time for you know the world to engage with India. And certainly a post-Brexit Britain, in terms of global Britain, has talked often, you hear UK politicians talk about how special the relationship is with India, how they want to cultivate this relationship after Brexit. Uh, but there are, I think it's fair to say, irritancies in that relationship, whether it's around the gap between the trade rhetoric and the actual reality of mobility of Indian professionals and students into the UK. But one of the big sticking points has been about this perception that the UK is harbouring these billionaire fugitives who are being sought on anti-corruption cases in India. So what are your thoughts on that? Because it is a little bit of a complicating factor in the UK-India relationship at the moment. Well, I suppose being frank about it, the UK is messing up its relationship with India, and this is unfortunate. Uh, so after the Brexit referendum, as Mrs May and Liam Fox and the, the, the Brexiteers were trying to talk up the, the bright future after Brexit, India featured fairly prominently, 
as the kind of country with whom Britain could now do better business and develop a, a special relationship. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, I think it's, that's exactly right. It, I, I was not in favour of Brexit, but I, I have absolutely no problem with the, the rhetoric of global Britain. If we are to leave the European Union, this seems very sensible to me. But the problem is that Britain is caught in this bind where they will the ends of global Britain, but not the means. And so, as you say, there are lots of things that, annoy, that are, are almost tailor-made to annoy India at the moment, one of which is restrictions on visas for students, entrepreneurs, doctors at the UK in an attempt to uh, exert some control over migration numbers is doing great damage to its relationship with India, particularly from a perceptions point of view. I mean, the actual policies are not terribly substantive in terms of numbers, but they are being widely reported in the Indian newspapers who see this as effectively a snub. And then you say on top of that, there's this rather peculiar issue that a very small number of high-profile Indian billionaires who have got themselves into trouble in India have ended up in London. And so in New Delhi now, London has this perception as, as this sort of home for the fugitive, feckless Indian rich. The most famous of these is a, a gentleman who I deal with in the book who's a charismatic, um, now ex-billionaire, called Vijay Malia. Uh, Vijay Malia was the founder of uh, Kingfisher Airline, Kingfisher Beer. Uh, he was a very flamboyant tycoon who embodied in the mid-2000s um, uh, and for some time afterwards the, the kind of spirit of the age, in a sense. He was uh, flamboyant. He, had a, he wore blingy earrings and rings. He had big parties. Um, he was on the front pages of the papers. He liked to consort with models. He had houses. You know, he had a castle in Scotland. He had a mansion in San Francisco. He had, I think, a dozen houses in India. He had a beachside mansion in Goa. I mean, he really did embody this change that had come over India. That that in a previous generation you had, you know, from Mahatma Gandhi to the the the, the, the leaders of the Nehru Gandhi dynasty who wore plain clothes and, and talked modestly. And then you had Vijay Malia, who was this piratical figure. However, uh, his airline went bust in spectacular fashion in 2012. He went this way and that, but eventually he couldn't find a way of paying off his debts so he didn't want to, and the, the, the law was catching up with him. And so he boarded a flight to London, and now he lives in London, you know, still manages his Formula One team. He's lost his cricket team, and he's lost most of his businesses. But there's this perception that the UK is, is harbouring him and a, and a bunch of other fugitives from justice. Actually, just walking here down to Chatham House in the centre of London, I walked down New Bond Street and I passed uh, the jewellery shop owned by one of these other fugitives, who's a gentleman called Nirav Modi, who's the most recent of these, who has been in the newspapers over the last couple of months. And so he, his arrival in London really brought this back to the sort of front of mind. Vijay Malia has been here for a couple of years now. The problem for Britain is this puts us in a very difficult position because if people turn up here and decide to claim asylum, which is what Nirav Modi, the most recent arrival, has done, there's not really very much you can do about that. The, the course of justice has to be followed. Um, you can't simply say, well, we want to have a trade deal with India, so we'll give them back anyone they want. Um, in the end, uh, you, you have to follow the law. But what I think that means is that if, if you have this issue, which is that you know London in particular is home to a lot of wealthy Indians, if you're Britain, you want to have a lot of wealthy Indians here, or at least I think you do, because they bring economic opportunity, cultural dynamism, a lot of things that we should want. Um, but some of them come with problems. There's not much you can do about that. But it does mean that the things that are within your control, like having a sensible visa policy, which is welcoming to 
entrepreneurial talent, to doctors for the NHS, for students who might come and make a home here or at least learn and build links with the UK, that you know you shouldn't be screwing that up. And the problem is that the British government does appear to be screwing that up. And I think there is a danger that they are going to do um, long-term damage to the relationship with India. And in the end, India has a lot of choices. Its students can go to universities in Australia or America or Singapore, where I live. Its entrepreneurs can go to Dubai or Singapore again. Its doctors can go almost anywhere in the world because they're the same doctors. And so Britain is in danger of thinking that it has this lockhold on the Indian imagination instead of thinking that it has to work very hard to, to attract people here in a way that it's not doing at the moment. James Crabtree, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So we're here with Jane Connors, who is the rights advocate for victims of sexual exploitation at the UN, to talk about your job. So what is your job? Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Let me first tell you that this job was created last year by the Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, He released a report in about March um, when he uh, launched a new strategy to eliminate and respond to, if it happens, sexual exploitation and abuse. And let me just clarify what that means. It means sexual abuse, in other words, what would be normally criminal activity, either sexual relations with a child or unwanted sexual relations, rape or something of that nature, and exploitation, which is essentially um, taking advantage of your position of power with regard to beneficiaries uh, and it's with respect to UN personnel. So um, my role, which is victims' rights advocate, uh, sometimes people like other names like victims assistance advocate, which it definitely isn't. Assistance might be provided, but the rights is very important, is to be an advocate for those who are victims of um, exploitation or abuse perpetrated by UN personnel. And most people, when they think of this, think of a peacekeeping operation with a blue helmet. Um, UN personnel in this context include troops, uh, uniformed personnel, uh, who are working under the UN flag, but also non-UN uh, troops who might be under a Security, Coun- a Security Council mandate, as well as civilians, um, civilians who might be international, such as myself, or national UN personnel. And more and more um, we're looking at, uh, I look at this, although it's really outside of our control to a certain extent, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse by implementing partners, because we don't do all of the work ourselves on the ground. Uh, And I'm looking at it not only in the context of peacekeeping, which is the classic, but also humanitarian. And we have huge humanitarian operations in, for example, Lebanon, Jordan, and other countries uh, around the world, and development contexts. And uh, so that's my role. It's a system-wide role. Uh, And I'm supposed to act as the victim's rights advocate for victims, not only of the secretariat and entities under the um, direct supervision of the secretary general, but also our related entities. And it's a big machine. It's uh, many and various. So this role was created last year. Uh, And I was appointed to the role in August and I took up the role in September. And therefore, I haven't been in the job very long. And uh, the whole idea was to change the orientation of the UN to this sort of behaviour from entirely a a reputational 
response or a conduct and discipline response to more looking at what this does to victims and what sorts of prevention measures should be put in place which place the victim at the centre because I think often uh, prevention measures don't make it clear that this conduct hurts a person, harms a person, strikes at their very dignity, and then in the context of response to improve our response um, in and place the victim at the centre. Uh, so I've been doing this for, I suppose, nine months now. It's not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination because, and if, if you think about working in any organisation, organisations do have a culture and they do have a reputational interest to maintain their high reputation. Uh, and, and that's very much... Um, people really enjoy working for the UN, predominantly because uh, it is... It's such a privilege to work for an organisation which has the aim that is set out in the United Nations Charter. So they enjoy working for it um, and, of course, they become it becomes part of their lives. And I can say that myself. I was a UN staff member for over 18 years. It becomes part of your life. You think about it, you admire it, and when, when this sort of, sort of behaviour occurs, you are very protective. So we want to move from that protective to actually focusing on what this conduct does to individuals uh, and seeking to more or less um, get to a position where they enjoy their entitlements, uh, where, where we don't talk about the response in, I suppose, charitable ways, but a prevention and response approach which focuses on entitlements and fulfilling those entitlements so needs and assistance uh, are provided. So that's my role. Now you're going to say, what have you done? Um, well, no, actually. <laughs> you're not going to ask, what have I done? Well, we I was going to ask, yeah, I'm sure we will do. Mm. But why was the role created at this point in time? Well, the role was created, um, you will recall, in, 2000, in 2015, there were allegations with regard to troops in the Central African Republic. And just be aware of those troops. They were French troops um, serving under a Security Council mandate. Uh, and as you recall, the allegations related to sexual abuse of boys and uh, the indication was that there was some knowledge of these allegations and they had moved, uh, essentially. The response had been fragmented so that in terms of uh, these victims of this abuse, um, things didn't work out very well for them. Some cases are still ongoing, but um, there hasn't been much in the way of satisfaction where these um, young boys are concerned. So thereafter, an independent um, body looked at what uh, went on in the Central African Republic and reported um, by the end, I think, of 2015, or might be a bit later than that, I, I can't recall. And there were various issues that were perceived as being problematic, amongst which was that the human rights of the victims were not put at the centre of the activity, that there wasn't a joined-up approach uh, and there wasn't a system wide approach which allowed for things to fall between the cracks. Following that in 2016, uh, under the uh, Secretary Generalship of the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, a coordinator was uh, a, 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 the Secretary General's coordinator on sexual exploitation and abuse role was created and she still retains that role. Her name is Jane Holdout and she was put in charge uh, with 
creating a system-wide response, a coordinated response, bringing them all, to, bringing us all together across the system, um, so that we would have, I suppose, a gold standard with regard to this particular horrendous activity. She worked during 2016, and then the new Secretary General came on board, and he is very committed to the elimination. And if it occurs, a very robust response to sexual exploitation and abuse. He doesn't believe anyone serving under the UN flag should be involved in any of this sort of conduct. He more or less in his first week called Miss Lute and asked her to establish, uh, to lead a working group to come up with a new response to sexual exploitation and abuse because he's adamant that he doesn't want to hear about, well, he hears about it, but he wants to see that there's a robust response. They came up with some recommendations and then the Secretary-General himself put forward a strategy which has four prongs. The first is putting victims first. The second is ending impunity. Uh, easier said than done. Uh, the third is reorienting our communications so we're a bit transparent. We actually say this occurs uh, and it does occur. It occurs in other contexts as well. It, occurs in the development banks and we've seen it occur, occurs in charitable organisations and then also building a multi-stakeholder approach. And this is why I'm very happy that I'm speaking to you because we know, need all the help we can get. I mean, this is a systemic issue. This is an issue um, in terms where you have power and you have beneficiaries and where you have um, severe vulnerabilities, um, this sort of behaviour may occur, shouldn't occur, but um, we have seen from other circumstances such as sexual harassment in many contexts that much has to be done in order to bring about an entire change in culture with regard to how you use the power you have and you mightn't even know you have that power. You might feel you as a a person have no power, but indeed when you look at the people who might be beneficiaries in, in a country like South Sudan, for example, um, any amount of power will be much more power than they have. Mm. I just wondered if I could jump in with just a question about the this kind of the definition of sexual exploitation, mm -hmm. just to go back to what you were saying about that. And I wondered whether whether you have a take on whether there's a distinction between certain different types of, of exploitation in the sense that legally and also I think like in terms of public opinion there's often a, a perception there's a difference between people who are I don't know for example engaging in a child sex ring and mm -hmm. running a child sex ring um, and or trafficking people mm -hmm. for sex and there's a difference between that and people who are paying a prostitute mm -hmm. for example um, in a particular locale when they're on tour or something. Is that a distinction that you recognise and is that a distinction that the strategy recognises and does the response differ? Or um, Well, obviously it's a distinction that I recognise because abuse, which will in general terms be criminal, mm -hmm. um, and we're when we're talking about the United Nations, we have no criminal justice arm. Right. Um, we're talking of uh, essentially administrative sanctions, which are implemented more or less by an employer, and um, they can be significant for the individual concerned. Um, because the, I mean, the most obvious is you you can lose your job, sure. uh, and if you're a, a troop, for example, you can be um, immediately sent home, and you can also find yourself in a situation where you will never serve 
of uh, inner peacekeeping operation again. And um, your involvement in this sort of activity will be forever there. Uh, and now we're introducing better um, checking systems so that there isn't this movement which you find across... Um, and you did see it with the, with I suppose the um, information relating to Oxfam and Haiti uh, and what went on in 2011. But you do see, and you see it in in sex tourism, for example. They call it voluntourism, um, where people who have particular interests move through the charitable sector. Right. And uh, things aren't as tight enough as they should be, but let's hope that we can improve things. And I know that um, many governments, uh, including the United Kingdom, certainly the Netherlands, my um, Australia, not my own, my natal country, they're very, very interested in ensuring that there isn't this movement. Um, but with sexual exploitation, typically uh, what you're talking about is transactional sex, um, a term I really do not like, um, but where somebody who is a beneficiary, typically a person with less power, engages in sexual relations with or any form of sexual relations with UN personnel for money, food, services, whatever, whatever. Clearly there is a distinction in terms of the sort of accountability that might go beyond the accountability that the UN can provide. Um, but in terms of the conduct which is required, both are perceived to be conducts which are um, sanctionable as sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, just out, just maybe then to follow on on that, for activities that sort of go beyond the brief of the, or sort of the authority of the United Nations to sanction, what structures exist to prosecute people for those sorts of activities? Because I imagine a lot of activities that happen in contexts, countries that are war-torn, there's civil mm -hmm. war maybe, like complete strife, a breakdown of governmental authority. These things can happen without much accountability from the national government. Mm -hmm. So what structures exist to, to prosecute peacekeepers or any personnel that well, engage if, in? That's where complexities uh, are created because the site of accountability which goes beyond the administrative accountability that the UN can provide, differs according to the nature of the personnel. So if it's a troop, the uh, country from who has provided that troop has the jurisdiction with regard to um, that individual. And there have been prosecutions or there have been military tribunals that have investigated these, um, which have in, proceeded with them. Uh, the original, the, at the outset, the UN investigates and also the... the um, the troops, uh, the troop contributing country may um, request that it does the investigation alone, uh, or we encourage them to do it with us, with the organ, uh, the Office of Internal Oversight Services. But we assist as much as we can do, so that uh, uh, criminal, uh, you know, a criminal prosecution or some for, form of uh, uh, process goes forward, wherein there might be individual accountability. I think we should do a, a bit more with regard to, uh, I suppose, chain of command um, accountability, but but that's something for another conversation. If it's a civilian, and the civilians, the, the Secretary-General has made very clear that um, even in the case where immunity applies and it doesn't apply to criminal activity or acts outside your, um, you know, sort of criminal activity acts outside your work and certainly sexual abuse and exploitation doesn't fall within your uh, job description. Um, 
even if you have immunity, if you're one of the very few staff uh, within the Uni United Nations which has some form of immunity beyond the functional, he will waive it. So that there will be no immunity for this sort of behaviour, um, even if the person enjoys it, and very few people do. There the site of jurisdiction will be the host country, um, which, as you say, um, mightn't have in place uh, the appropriate um, legal system, uh, mightn't have anything or may have something which mightn't be essentially human rights compliant. There we would hope that, um, and this is encouraged by the Secretary-General, if you read his reports on um, sexual exploitation and abuse, extraterritorial jurisdiction. And certainly in this country there is uh, such jurisdiction with regard to crimes relating to children. And I understand that there is a move to expand um, that legislative reach. Um, so that uh, there would be a, a possibility of, of crimes relating to adults as well incorporated. And many, many countries uh, do have this, but we encourage more to so do. So, and then similarly with the experts on mission police and others who maybe, there may be other um, people involved, um, other categories of personnel. Of course... Criminal prosecution, any form of criminal accountability is difficult in the best of circumstances. Mm. And I think you only need to look at um, the success with respect to sexual crimes in this country and look at how many, how many incidences we think might occur, how many reports are made, and then out of those reports, how many proceed to any... Um, trial. Yeah. And then out of those now, because of the enthusiasm with regard to, I mean, I don't know, it goes swings and roundabouts, how many of these processes are successful. Yeah. Um, so that is where there's a big battle um, yeah. in terms of where what can occur. Um, you need, I mean, there are evidentiary challenges. There are challenges with respect to even locating. I mean, the victim may come and complain and then be you know, there's stigma, there's stereotyping, um, they may fear reprisals, they may, may fear, and they may be threatened, we don't know. Yeah. Um, we may not know where the victim is, and that's very difficult. Um, the victim may not want to consent to any um, uh, personally identifying information being made available, um, may wish to come um, to receive uh, some, sort of, uh, some sort of support and assistance, but not wish. Uh, and it is up. Um, it's the conclusion is that in the reporting, the victim has to give consent, has to give informed consent, and that cannot be overruled. So criminal law, at the best of times, is difficult. Um, and then uh, you have these other complications. But I am not giving up hope. There are issues. There are issues in all contexts. But individual accountability is extremely important. It can be extremely empowering for victims. But more than that, uh, it can have a very dissuasive effect on others who might um, seek to engage in this sort of conduct. I mean, I'm a great believer in individual accountability um, and I'm a great believer in looking to see what we can do to achieve that through better investigations, better victim support, legal support for victims, and we need to mirror it. I mean, if we're looking at the, a troop for example, we need to have legal support available at the host country level and legal support mirrored at the other level. I mean, you were appointed last year and I think there was a 2013 
UN investigation which declared sexual abuse and exploitation the most significant risk to UN peacekeeping missions. And previous to that, you know, there were allegations that came out of Kosovo, Cambodia, Mozambique. This is a long-running mm-hmm. issue. It's not new. How much do you think the sort of reputation of the UN as being the good guys has meant that this hasn't really been looked at closely? You know, and I think other NGOs have this as well, Amnesty, Oxfam, the idea that these people are doing good, so they are under this umbrella of, yeah, the good guys. But there are always some people who do bad things. I think the UN has taken this issue as seriously as it could in the context of of those particular times. And I, I think you can't, you can't decontextualise um, approaches to this sort of conduct. And I don't believe there will always be the bad guys, frankly. I, I think this is not... A, and I think that is individualising um, patterns of conduct which reflect patterns of conduct in real life, as I tend to think. So I think we, we can't... We have to stop saying... And people say this to me, this will always go on, and I say that is just self-defeating and also, to a certain extent... Justify. I mean, I don't know whether it justifies it, but it sort of allows you to think, oh, well, a little bit of this will always mm-hmm. happen. And I think, um, I mean, zero tolerance is overused. I actually came across... Um, year, I worked on issues relating to domestic violence and years ago, um, a Scottish Women's Aid, I think it must have been in the 80s, produced um, zero tolerance postcards. And I think this probably is where this all came from. And I just found them in my house the other day, 1985, (laughs) the zero tolerance postcards. And they were very interesting. You know, they say, you know, sort of he he brought her he, he brought her a bunch of flowers and then he broke her jaw you know they're very really in your face and I and I think they did have an effect on people's approach people do not say that domestic violence is a family matter any longer they do it but they will not say it's a family matter so we've got to get and get beyond that so I think there's always been there's always been this work there's always been a clear understanding that the reputational risks are huge Mm. and not only the reputational risks because who trusts you if you're preying upon them. Uh, And that, of course, puts any of the enterprise at great risk. Um, So I do believe that these scandals, um, more recent ones, really pushed. And the Secretary-General has a number of priorities, getting rid of sexual exploitation and abuse, number one. Um, Well, they're not, you know, in any hierarchy. Uh, Sexual harassment he finds intolerable, and we have upped our game with regard to that, though much more needs to be done. And um, gender parity, and we've got now uh, 24 women and 21 men at the upper levels, USG, ASG. A lot more needs to be done, um, particularly in the field, uh, because um, you you don't have... The gender parity is more at the level of the headquarters organisations. Can I uh, ask quickly? So, yeah. I mean, do you, do you know how many women there are in the field or what the ratios are? I don't know off the top of my yeah. head to, uh, today, but I do know that there are far more uh, SRSGs and DSRSGs who are men and not women. And, indeed, there was a, a push. I think it was... Uh, 
2017, there was a push and a note for bail was sent out and a, there was a sort of broadcast to everybody for people to put them, preferably women, to be mm. put forward. And I understand that most of the people put forward were indeed men and then they went back and asked them, you know, we, did you see this line in the note for bail, <laughs> so to speak? Um, but there's a funny thing, you know, I've spoken to know sort of people in the field and they tell me how difficult this work is and you know women would have you'd have to find a particular role for women and you know it can be dangerous and you know if you're working you know riots it can be whatever whatever and um and I just recalled that plane where the window blew out Mm. and um that must have been dangerous and technically very difficult for that woman pilot to land that plane. She, but she managed to do it. Sounds so like women she, are almost she found like a men. way. She she just managed. <laughs> I mean, how how is it possible that a woman could actually one drive a plane and then land it in huge? She was probably a one-off though. Yeah, we always, I don't think women like that exist more broadly. We always need sarcasm. Doesn't they always, always come across that well. On no, no, they, we, I never hear. You know, sort of, it has to be a qualified man, but I do hear that it has to be a qualified woman. Woman, Why, though? but I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm not. Um, I don't think the answer to sexual exploitation and abuse and sexual harassment is to have more women. And I think that's rather, you know, it's really pejorative, really. Um, we need to have more women there because all of these bad things won't happen. And there's nothing... <laughs> it's quite a lot of pressure on women <laughs> as well. And there's nothing... It's pretty damning I mean, on men as well, yeah. to be honest. But there, yeah, exactly. It's not great for anybody. No, I know, exactly. And I, and I think, um, I mean, I know perfectly well-behaved men and mm. and I, I think that is you have to say you know this I believe I don't believe that this conduct is inevitable mm. uh, I believe that much has to be done um, to make sure the conduct doesn't occur and I, I believe also that um, women are not necessarily are not without their um, defects as well and certainly and I've seen in the context of abuse of power they can be pretty good at abuse of power also mm. no I mean just give women a chance to be awful. We, we will. We just haven't always had the chance. <laughs> well, I, I like to. I, I hope. I hope that um, I don't. I don't perceive myself as very powerful. But I hope in my. Uh, I've had lots of management experience um, in this hierarchical organisation that I work in, and uh, I would hope that uh, I, what I. I didn't take the opportunity to abuse power, um, but I have. I have seen it, and it's it's reprehensible. Whoever perpetrates this yeah. behaviour. Well, I think that's quite a serious note to end. Quite a serious discussion. Um, thank you so much, Jane Connors, um, for Thanks. coming to speak to us. No problem. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Next time, Ben hopefully will be back if he hasn't decided to run off with a I don't know barmaid from the Sydney Opera House, which would be fair enough, I suppose. So it won't just be me wittering on my own shouting into the void um so we'll be back next week um if you've liked what you've heard please rate us and um subscribe and follow chatham house on twitter at chatham house so yeah my name's agnes frimpson you've been listening to undercurrents